The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Technology stocks drive the rally in U.S. equities as markets priced in a 100% chance the Fed will dial back its rate hike to 25 basis points at next week's meeting. Spotify becomes the latest big tech name to announce sweeping job cuts as Google boss Sundar Pichai reportedly tells staff he needed to act decisively amid slowing growth. The investment arm of Qatar has raised its holding in Credit Suisse, making it the second largest shareholder as the Swiss lender looks to the Middle East to fund its restructuring program. And calls from Kiev and its allies grow louder for Germany to sign off on Leopard tank deliveries, with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg set to hold talks with Germany's new Defence Minister this morning. Rumour is Karen, he took an extra day to recover, but yeah, he's absolutely. back with a plumb. Too right, I can't believe you guys came in. <laughs> uh, it would have been perfectly possible, I think, to have restructured the presenting team to have some fill-in staff. Oh, I don't know about yesterday. that. I can't I'm believe not, you came I'm in. Not, I'm it not was, 100% convinced about that premise. Man, it was, uh, it was attritious. It was, it was, it was, it was busy. It was almost it was as cold as our busy. newsroom this morning. Yes, it was, uh, it was a little bit colder than our newsroom, I think. What was it, minus 15 when we were on the uh, platform? Minus double digit negative. It was cold. Was it? And well done on the panel. Well, thank you very much. Fabulous. Thank you very much. I've already congratulated him. I don't need to go through all that. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It was. Um, We'd have nice if you'd have rushed up a bit quicker, though. What's that? <laughs> you got stuck. Oh, up the stairs. Well, well, the problem was that um, obviously we had to wait for the president of WEF to finish his long delivery about the triumphs of WEF. So if over, let me get this right. Uh, let me get this right. The, you do a magnificent panel with yeah. five of the most important people in world finance and academia. Yes. You do a great conclusion, and then WEF decided to do another conclusion on the back of it. Uh, that's pre- pretty much how it went, yeah. I mean, I, I did feel a little bit for some of the panelists who were obviously waiting to be clear. Well, they'd given it their all to Because they had other, other things to go You'd to quite quickly. you grilled them for the best part of an hour, and yes. then they had to listen to a, a speech at the end. Well, I'm sure it was a terrific speech. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the, you were there, was it? Look, the thing is, we, we go in as the hired gun, don't we? We don't organise the event itself. No. So if any of the panellists have a beef, then uh, take it to WEF, don't, t- don't bring it to us. <laughs> OK. <laughs> all right, I'll uh, I think we've been indiscreet enough now, haven't we? We probably should talk about the markets. Oh, I think that's why people But thank you. This. Thank you for, you know, holding up your end of the, you know. No, as one of our bosses said, what are you worried about, Steve? You had all that tape to throw to. (laughs) 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 Right, okay, let's get back to our bread and butter. And these markets had a very solid session yesterday, led by technology stocks. I'll come to that in a few moments' time. Look, the data... I don't know really what you want from the data at the moment. Sometimes we know you want bad data because you want to see less rate hikes. And sometimes you want to see great data uh, because you actually think, oh, yeah, if it's good for the economy and Main Street, it's good for the market. At the moment, it's very confusing. I I guess you want to see solid data that is pointing on the recession watch, but you want to see weak data pointing on the inflation watch. I think that's pretty much where you're at. So yesterday's leading indicators, well, they were disappointing yet again. uh, Ten straight months of declines there. Today we've got PMIs, and later in the week we've got a, a GDP 
GDP print on Thursday, we've got durable goods print on Thursday, and advanced economic indicators. So there's a lot to digest uh, over the coming few days. And, and as we've pointed out, and I'm sure we'll show you the wall again a bit later on, a lot of tech companies reporting, including Microsoft, which has been so active uh, in AI in the last 48 hours. So let's move on to the technology stocks, and I can show you that they did rally pretty solidly across the board. Uh, Tesla putting on 7.7%. A fascinating uh, trial going on at the moment. Did Mr. Musk mislead investors in uh, about funding for takeovers and what have you? Just, just read the copy. It's very, very interesting, actually. Uh, Spotify. Uh, that one in our headlines. I know we'll come back to that one later on as well. The latest company in the tech space uh, to see um, a bit of um, uh, cost cutting and rationalization. Salesforce, we've already seen that from Mr. Benioff's group as well. That was up five, uh, 3.1% and Apple putting on 2.4%. Again, in the news frame, talking about diversification of production lines. Treasuries, uh, I can tell you the 10-year yield trading around 3.5%. There are thereabouts on the change. 4.2% at the short end of the curve. The dollar's been taking a pounding recently. Is it still taking one? Let's have a look. Uh, I, uh, the pound, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of where it was actually this time yesterday. We did have a 129 handle on the dollar yen at one stage. Uh, the pound r- circa 124 again um, and the euro dollar uh, pair, which Jeff very cheekily, cheekily in his panel on Friday said to uh, Madame Lagarde, and we all heard it, Jeffrey, well, what about if the uh, euro dollar gets to 120? Is that going to change some of your policymakers' thoughts as well? And she was batting away. It was like two titans batting and probing, looking for weaknesses as well. Madame Lagarde and Jeff Cutmore, who have crossed swords in a very friendly way many times over the years. He's saying, what have I jumped into this Monday morning? Uh, uh, Tuesday morning, actually, Jeffrey. Yeah. Uh, let's have a look at the Asian indices and where they are at the moment. Uh, solid on the topic, solid on the Nikkei. Um, Moderate gains on the ASX 200, Nifty 50 just up 0.1 of 1%. And the opening calls for European markets, well, we are seeing Europe push ahead. London is coming up against the problem, the fact that the pound is rallying as well. So some of that discount that is in there on the London market that people keep telling us about as well, um, some of that just disappearing a little bit and making London slightly less attractive. So, uh, yeah, no, I love that. I love you. That? You, you just chucked in there. What about 120, uh, Madame Lagarde? And she was well. like, oh. Well, I mean, look, um, the reality is you're rarely going to get an answer from a central banker about currencies, because as we know, the default position is always the one that Madame Lagarde went to, which is um, we don't target a currency level. But um, does anybody actually believe that? It's like BP or Saudi Aramco turning around to you and say we don't build our business model based on a certain price per barrel of oil, which they clearly do, of course. Well, they certainly base, just on that last point, how much they give back to shareholders based on a certain barrel because we hear it very often from certainly the oil majors is like anything above this kind of level where where we go to a certain amount of free cash flow from the oil operations then we will be handing back to shareholders so you're absolutely right something that draws both points together the reopening theme out of china i think um, this was a a factor even with your panel really came up that this could be the wild card for markets in terms of inflation i thought it was interesting christine lagarde may have wanted to play on the currency front didn't go there but very much looked at that inflation story out of china and what the ramifications could be for europe and clearly we're still talking about where we get to in terms of rates here in Europe and the United States. I think some are fixated on the terminal rate, others are fixated on how long do we stay at these elevated levels. In Europe we might still be going higher to a certain amount because of that inflation rate. Yeah, I mean, did you did you guys talk yourself out as far as uh, Davos is concerned yesterday? I mean, after the firework, now the fizzle, because um, it, having, having spent the weekend kind of thinking about um, what I take away from the event, I'm actually not 
as excited as I thought I might be about the prospects for economic activity through the rest of this year. It, it seemed to me that the corporates were very excited because they're all engaged in C-suite navel gazing about how they restructure their businesses, how they trim some fat, how they reduce headcount, how they make their businesses leaner and more efficient and how they improve profitability. But none of that sounded actually like a really good story for Main Street as the Americans would say. So this morning, as we, as we think about the markets, maybe the markets actually get a, a little bit of a pep from the fact that there is a lot of talk about redundancies at the moment, because perversely, we know that corporates uh, tend to see an improvement in their share price performance on the back of a major cost-cutting announcement around jobs. I can just pick up on your margin story. I think that is one of the big stories for the markets right now. We've gone peak margins. We've seen that with all the pressures on the import side uh, that we've faced, uh, net margins on the S&P in the fourth quarter expected to be back to 2019 levels. So that is telling you about some of the pressure. We saw it in terms of an activist. Uh, many of the traders believe that's what came to bear at Salesforce. The activists looked at the margins and went, look, they're not up to scratch, not up to peers, not up to industry level. Let's have a go. And I think this is a challenge for corporates in this type of environment. Margins have been hit. Corporate profits are an issue now as we uh, work through this earnings season. I think the problem is away from the economics for some of these corporates. And we're going to push on. Uh, Fed officials are signalling that they might slow the pace of tightening further at the upcoming meeting. This is the US labour market continues to cool off while other economic indicators such as wholesale prices and retail sales also point to a decline last week. Fed Governor Christopher Waller favours a quarter percentage point rate increase at the January meeting, while Fed Vice Chair Lael Brynard said a smaller rate hike could help the central bank uh, land at a quote sufficiently restrictive level. Allianz Chief Economic Advisor Mohamed Alarian does not favour a big shift to looser monetary policy, telling our US colleagues that he thinks the Fed should stay the course. The inflation dynamics themselves are not very encouraging because what has happened is inflation has moved from the goods sector to the services sector, and that's much harder um, to contain. So I'm, I'm in the very, very small camp who thinks that they should not downshift to 25 basis points. They should do 50. They should take advantage of this growth window we're in. They should take advantage of where the market is, and they should try to tighten financial conditions, because I do think that we still have an inflation issue. Uh, well, let's bring in Michael Metcalf then, head of macro strategy at State Street Global Markets. Um, Michael, good morning to you. Nice to see you. Um, funnily enough, we, we were having a bit of a chat this morning about um, how, uh, how all in the retail investor or the, co- or, or, or the institutional investor is at the moment. Because it, I, I think it's important to, 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 to understand that dynamic, to ask the question as to whether there is further momentum for another upleg here, even as we run into the corporate earnings season at the moment. So what's your sense of how fully invested people are and whether there is scope at this stage for further dry powder to be put to work? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really key question because we've had, uh, you know, we've had this kind of Santa rally at the end of last year driven by uh, China reopening, hopes of Fed rate cuts um, and, and, a, you know, and a, a massive pivot, um, but also a little bit of short covering. Uh, and certainly our read on investors' cash holdings, which is getting to your dry powder question, uh, is actually around its long run average. And so you know, cash holdings went up a lot last year, but only kind of got back to average. And so I actually don't think that there's a massive amount of 
excess cash on the sidelines, at least from institutional investors, to come back into the market. So we actually need good news. I, I want to come back at both of you, actually, and I'm sure Karen will jump as well, because you made a very interesting point. You said, how much is the retail investor in? And then you ended up with, well, what about the in, in, institutional investor? Yeah. And I think, dare I say, I think that subtlety is very important because time and time again on a rally, it's the retail investor who's been stuck at the top of the market investing in and actually has been kind of like the buyer of last resort, where the institutions... Historically, the idea is they're slightly cannier on this one as well. So I take on board your point about the retail investor, but I take on board yours about the institutional. So can we have a little bit more subtlety about who's in and who's out? Yeah, well, look, I mean, so, so obviously last year there were a significant amount of retail outflows, um, but, but retail is, it has come back in again. And so, you know, the, 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 the bigger question, I suppose, are the excess savings that the consumers have. Uh, and, and they're still there very clearly. So, you know, in terms of the excess savings that um, consumers accumulated after the pandemic, uh, you know, we reckon they've, um, uh, they've unwound about half of them. Um, so there, there is still money there. Uh, and you know, in the US, it's probably in excess of a trillion dollars that could come back into markets or could get spent. Michael, is that a one-way bet, though, on technology from some of the retail investors? They love the FANG stocks, they like playing the NASDAQ. It's been such an easy trade for them over the last couple of years. Is that what's happening? You've got investors just stampeding back into one area of the markets. And we had someone on yesterday saying, look, retail investors need to have a multi-asset approach right now, uh, not a very single-name exposure that they've been carrying. So is that what we're seeing? It's just technology for a lot of these retail investors still. Um, I, I mean, the, the flows in tech have been strong. And I think, look, we're, we're back to the rate cut bets. And I think you have to try and think about, you know, to, to the comments that Alarion was making, uh, you, you did at the top of the program there, is that you know, if those rate cut bets aren't realized, that, that the sector that's probably going to suffer the most is tech, because it, it, it's been a lower rate play. Um, so yeah, no, I would agree. I, I, I think you know, if money rushes back into one sector, it's going to be vulnerable if that theme begins to unravel. And you know, you know, right now, it seems pretty unclear to us how the Fed ends up cutting rates by year end. But the, I mean, as we went into uh, Davos, it seemed that the narrative from the first week or so of trading was very much the Fed is not far away from um, ending the, the rate hikes. And actually, if you want to um, go and find some value, emerging markets are the place to do it, or the China play is the big opportunity here. Any reason um, to, 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 to vary from that view and to pile back into the tech stocks that Karen was talking about at this point. Well, I so, mean, uh, so and firstly, do you agree with that narrative? I, yeah, no, I, no, look, so, so I, I, I think the, um, the China reopening play, which is the other theme that's been running alongside the Fed rate cut hope, I think that has more legs because we do know that China has reopened and is reopening far quicker than anyone anticipated. And I, I think, you know, we talked a bit about positioning. Uh, and, and cash oil is the one, the one area that is, in contrast to tech, which is crowded, the one area which is very underweight and undervalued is, is emerging markets. Uh, and so I, I, I think that's a much safer way to play this kind of risk on that we've had for the last few months for, for it to continue. What's safe about buying emerging markets when they've got all their dollar funding to come at higher rates than they've had and with a stronger dollar? I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's an old playbook, isn't it? You don't buy emerging markets with a strong dollar in town. Well, but, but that's, that's, the, that's the other flip side of this, you of course, as well, is, is, is the dollar is obviously, well, and, and look, the, the dollar has had a very, exactly to your point, has had a very strong inverse correlation with risk appetite. Uh, and, and so that's partly why we've seen the dollar come off as risk has improved. Me, I mean, even when 
I mean, again, we've talked a lot in 2022, all of us, I'm sure you just yeah. about various kind of pivots. Uh, and, and the pivot that the market's finally got round to might be okay is actually not rise, raising rates anymore, not cutting them. So even if everybody slows down on the inflation front and they slow down on the hiking front and Waller's right and we're going to get 25 basis points this time around, plus maybe one more of those to come as well. We're still going to get a Fed funds rate, which is way higher than, of course, the BOJ, way higher than the Bank of England, way higher than the ECB, the Rix Bank, the SMB, etc., etc., as the great Yul Brenner once said. <laughs> so, so, you know, so why emerging markets when you're going to have higher? Why why would you sell the dollar? When, what's the short end? What was the two year I just said? 4.2%. Take your money. Yeah, but is it, I, th- I think this is the interesting thing: is that emerging market fundamentals have changed significantly. And so, you, so you're right. There, there are there are some countries that have got some dollar exposure, and and, and you know, if you think about the rates where they are, you'd say exactly. It's, it's it's the area you should avoid. But this is the key point: it's the area that investors have already avoided, oh. and they're underway. And I think a lot a lot of that bad news has been in the price. And actually, emerging market central banks did a terrific job getting rates up faster than developed market central banks. And are now going to be easing. So you know, local currency bond markets and EM would also be attractive. Can I ask you a little bit more about inflation? One of the interesting conversations I had last week was that getting back to 2% is going to be incredibly difficult. That was with the CEO of Clarion, big chemicals company. And, you know, effectively, they've had a little bit of a pullback on some of those imports. But now with the China reopening theme, some of those import uh, prices could go back up again. It's, like it's going to be very bumpy getting back to 2%. How do we get to that point where central banks feel comfortable enough that we're back in the range? I mean, what is the pathway to get, to get there? Well, I mean, they're on the pathway. I mean, they're doing all the right things. Uh, I think we now, unfortunately, just have to wait for the data. And that's why I think, you know, in a very similar way to last year, we're still, you know, the market is still on the hook for every single CPI release in the United States. Um, and, you know, I think the thing that troubles us a little bit is that while we can see fairly clear signs of disinflation, uh, it's still not at a rate that's anywhere near where the Fed could be comfortable. Uh, and you know, look, at, at State Street, we're able to, to uh, we have a partnership with PriceStats where we get access to online data. So we've already got a look at uh, the first 20 days of uh, 2023 in the States. Uh, and inflation is, it's a little bit better than last year, but it's still above average. And that's the problem. But the data is mixed, isn't it? Leading indicators, economic indicators say that we've already turned when it comes to the US economy. You can see consumption patterns in some areas have pulled back. And then Bank of America has its terrific research saying, look, consumption, some of that activity picked up again to start this year. Those are very mixed signals we're getting. Yeah. And and look, I think that's reflected in the pricing data itself is that retailers still retain a little bit of pricing power. Uh, and and you know, because demand hasn't fallen yet. And so that's why the disinflationary... Pro- and the, the housing market in the US is a really good example, is that the recorded housing inflation that the BLS is capturing is still very robust, but we know some of the alternative data, some of the online data is already a bit softer. So we know the slowdown is coming. It's just a question of whether it's fast enough. And that's the bit that, it, frankly, right now is still an unknown. Michael, the major component of uh, the rise in inflation and then the disinflation we may have been seeing has been energy prices. And um, because of the China reopening question, it seems that the markets are again running ahead of the reality by pushing up a barrel price of oil. So we're back in the 80s. Um, Should we be concerned? Everybody kind of shot down stagflation and said it's not going to happen. The job market's too strong. And now we're talking about job losses in tech companies and we're talking about job losses in automakers. Do we need to actually begin to perhaps put this back on the table and uh, ask whether there is 
the possibility towards the end of the year that we might be talking about stagflation for the for the global economy. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I I, I would never have discounted stagflation. I think that's still our central scenario. In fact, I mean, it sort of depends how you define it, I suppose. But you know, certainly below average growth and above average inflation, I think, is going to be true in most economies this year. Um, and I think it's just the, the the bit that we don't really know is how the central banks are going to react. Uh, and you know, the market right now is assuming that somehow the Fed cuts rates at the end of the year. Uh, it seems unlikely to us, given where inflation is. Oh, that's so, so that's interesting. So, so trim portfolios of headline risk, um, bit, uh, higher cash weightings for the rest of the year. I mean, just just give yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think right now we're a little bit more defensive than than actually certainly some of the market price action and some of the market narrative because we just simply don't believe the Fed can cut rates. And to your first question, we don't think investors have got you know, there isn't cash on the sidelines to to, to chase this rally higher. Yeah. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Michael Metcalf with us, Head of Macro Strategy, State Street Global Markets. Uh, For more on analysts' biggest stock calls, check out CNBC Pro. Have a look at the website. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde says the central bank will, quote, stay the course. Lagarde warned that the ECB will keep raising interest rates quickly while inflation remains above the 2% target. In a speech on Monday, Lagarde said that once interest rates reach sufficiently restrictive levels, they would stay there for as long as necessary. Meanwhile, ECB policymakers appear split on future interest rate hikes. While a 50 basis point increase is widely expected at next week's meeting, the Dutch and Slovak central bank governors are advocating for a bigger move in March, which President Lagarde appears to agree with. But their Italian and Greek counterparts say the central bank could benefit from a more cautious approach. Coming up on the programme, Qatar's Sovereign Wealth Fund lifting its stake in Credit Suisse as the bank looks east. We'll have more after the break on that story. And for more on expectations for the Fed as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, the Qatar Investment Authority has lifted its stake in Credit Suisse to just under 7%, making the Sovereign Wealth Fund the bank's second largest shareholder after this Saudi national bank. The move means that Middle Eastern investors now control more than 20% of Credit Suisse's stock, as longtime U.S. investors, uh, including Harris Associates, reduce their stakes in the Swiss lender. Well, Credit Suisse shares have fallen substantially in value over over the past years as the bank has tackled a series of scandals. I spoke to Credit Suisse CEO Ulrich Kerner at Davos and asked him what his message would be to Harris Associates as they reduced their position in the bank. I can't judge that why now, but I think, as I said, we are making progress, we are executing, so can't judge their timing, but uh, 
we will certainly have discussions. Uh, and okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, you had an opportunity there to, to tell them that they were selling at the wrong point, but no, no not yet. Okay, um, not yet. The plan is to be profitable from 2024 onwards. That's what you said back in October. Right. Is that still the plan? Is there any change from that? That's absolutely the plan. We gave an update for the fourth quarter, as we are also fully aware of. We said, you know, what is to be expected for 2023, and that's absolutely the plan. The plan is unchanged. Uh, Goldman Sachs says it expects commodities to outperform other classes in 2023, driven by low inventories, a lack of capital investment and changes in the global economic landscape. The bank has forecast returns of 31.2%. That's 31.2%, no less. Very exact, isn't it? Uh, over the next 12 months on the S&P Global Commodities Index. Uh, let's take a look at WTI and Brent. Jeff was referring to it with Michael Metcalf just now. But yes, we are off our highs. Uh, but we have had a, a very solid rally. Um, Brent at one point had a seven handle, 79 uh, early this year, but has had a, a very, very solid rally. Um, I just need to point out as well that Baker Hughes posted a miss on its profit in the fourth quarter amid concerns over the wider economic climate. However, the oilfield services group sounded a positive note going forward, uh, saying it expects to be helped by tight supply and a boost in demand as China reopened uh, shares fell 1.5% in yesterday's session, despite some early gains. Um, all kinds of issues. I actually bumped into Lorenzo Simonelli because he was on one of my panels uh, in mm. Davos. I potentially will be seeing him again next week as well mm. at another mm. event as well. But the fact of the matter is, um, it's an industry which is very confused. Um, it's confused about permitting in the States. It's concerned about regulation. It's concerned about one uh, administration wanting to go all guns blazing on hydrocarbons and next administration uh, giving a more nuanced picture and of course with the Inflation Reduction Act benefiting renewables where does that leave oil field services in the United States globally of course there's still a vast amount of projects still going on in places such as Asia and we talked about China and that as well so it is a very nuanced um, geographical picture at the moment and this is a company that is part of the conversation though on energy transition right it's it looking at opportunities looking at the future and um, reorganize the business Business to take advantage of future opportunities. So I think it is looking at change. But one of the issues, of course, is a short-term bounce back in China. A lot of people want to play that trade. A lot of oil companies can see the upside. I mean, if we look at the oil price, we haven't really moved to a great extent just yet. And perhaps there is more short-term upside that sort of glosses over some of these long-term issues that we're talking about in the energy sector. Yeah. Um, I think we need to watch the data out of China very closely just to pick up on your point here, because I, I don't believe suddenly that a barrel of oil is worth another $10 based on the information that we have at the moment. But like inflation expectations, expectations around the reopening are running ahead of the reality here. And what did we learn over the weekend? Apparently 80% of the Chinese population has already had COVID. I don't know whether we believe those statistics, but those at face value are what the Chinese authorities are telling us at this stage. What they're not telling us is the calculation that some of the uh, epidemiologists were doing who were arguing that, look, based on that size of number, if you did the comparison with what Omicron did to the Western world, that would probably equate to something over 3 million deaths in China. But nobody has ever seen a figure anything like that. and. I don't think anybody ever will see a figure like that from the Chinese authorities. But if it looks anything like that, that tells us an awful lot about the fact that in the very short term, we're probably not seeing a huge 
um, uptick in spending activity yet. Yes. And we've got to get through the Chinese New Year holiday, which we know is a very unusual period in terms of the rest of the year for traveling, for spending, and so on and so forth. So I reckon it's really too early to tell just how strong that rebound in the Chinese consumer is going to be and whether that $10 back on the oil price is justified. So I had an interesting conversation with Jane Sun from Trip.com, and effectively she was saying you're seeing very short-term booking windows, which does tell you a story of caution. The Chinese might be opening the wallet to an extent and booking some holidays, but they're very, very short windows because they're concerned about what's around the corner, perhaps concerned about coming out of the house, where they're going, what they're spending. So I think that element is there. It is a cautious reopening that we are seeing. And it's all these little pieces of information we're trying to piece together at this stage. We're going to see a little bit of over at Lunar New Year, as you say, but I think that longer-term picture, whether the Chinese feel more comfortable about going further afield, about spending more on day-to-day activities, that's going to be the big theme for markets this year. Mm. And it's just the early evidence we're getting at this stage. Sorry, if I'm just, just going to add another mm. story into it. If things are so rosy in China, why are the lending terms to the property sector and property investors and people looking to buy property. Why is it still so lax? Why have they made it easier and easier to borrow if the, the Chinese authorities were thinking, oh, do you know what, we need to tie a bit here because things are going to get a bit frothier? Sorry, it just doesn't tally to me. Uh, and bearing in mind how a huge part of the Chinese economy yeah. the property sector is and has been. It's a vast, it's about that quarter of the growth of the last 10 years. Yeah, no, I mean, no, no, one, no one disagrees with the analysis. I mean, they, they will turn around and say, oh, it's, it, this is not about bad business, this is about liquidity. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, as a consequence of what we've seen in the global economy, maybe uh, the liquidity just hasn't been there, or, or maybe we got the bank lending terms wrong. But in reality, we all know that the reason that China is coming to this point is it's got the Western disease. It has embraced debt, and now when you look at the combined uh, debt for the state and for the oh. private sector and for the household so sector, debt GDP, it is enormous. It? Yeah. I can it find is, you the exact enormous. number if you like. And um, that will have consequences because debt ultimately is a purchase on the future. And if you've already done the spending, you can't do the spending again. So at some stage, you have to acknowledge that indebted economies run into a slower growth path because there isn't the firepower there and there isn't the return. Mm. Well, let me find you the exact data. I'm being a nerve-wracking here. If so I we have, we'll, find we'll have some interlude. No, no, no. Okay. All right. Well, no, I'll do it now. <laughs> okay. So uh, Chinese household debt is 62% of GDP. Mm. Add to that non-financial corporate debt is 159%. I hope someone's adding. We're about, what, 220 already. Mm. Government debt is about 77% debt to GDP, so we're mm. up to what, 297 roughly? And financial sector debt to GDP is 53.9% as well. So yeah, about 350, 360, which is what we said. Yeah. I mean, I it's, just... it's, it's Western equivalent. I was looking at a piece of analysis by a, a group called Affinity, who were looking at the um, cycle for COVID infections this time round. Um, just to try and get a handle on ultimately what, when we might get some more reliable data mm. about spending patterns. And according to, to the models they're looking at at the moment on the reported infections and the forecasts, it'll be March. It'll be potentially the 3rd of March before right. we see that peak and ultimately then a return to more normal patterns of consumption. Number of weeks to wait it out. I mean, that, mm. that tells you a lot about how people are gambling on the oil price right now. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.